Well, last week, like I said, we talked about verses 1 through 5, and we talked about this word. Now, kiddos, I'm going to see if you guys were listening, for those who were here. When I read, in the beginning was the word, I said, that reminds us of something. Do you remember what that reminds us of? Yeah, Adele. I think. That's right. It reminds us of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1, the very beginning. And in fact, last week, we talked a little bit about who this word was. The way I'm going to structure my sermon this morning, I'm going to ask questions like who, how, why, when, and where. I'm going to take those questions, those interrogatives that we learn even when we're in grammar school, how to form questions. Because in fact, when we look at this prologue, one thing that we will see is that as John introduces his main character of his gospel, this word who will take on flesh, he is going to set out these interrogatives for us, he's going to set out to answer them, to reveal at the very outset who this word is, the center of every sign to come, the center of every discourse to be uttered, every controversy to take place primarily in Judea, and the answer to every question that will be given implicitly or explicitly in this gospel. John is going to summarize who this word is, how this word chose to testify to himself, both before and after his coming. Why, in fact, this word came into the world, and when and how he accomplished the purposes for which he came. So you saw last week, we talked a little bit about who this word was. This word was God, everything about God, everything that makes God, God, the godliness of his godness is this word, but this word is not the same as the Father. We see here even a distinction between the persons in the Godhead. The word is eternal. All things came into being through the word. The word could not be overcome by the darkness. But the word was different from his Father. He had a relationship with his father, a relationship with this God in heaven, but he was not one and necessarily the same. Those persons, those distinctions were not collapsed, but instead he was the means by which all things came into being. And you notice that what I mentioned last week, and very importantly, was just as this word was able to fashion light from nothing, was able to fill that darkness and that void with light and glory that radiated from him, In the same way we see in verses 1 through 5 that that word was seeking to penetrate the spiritual darkness that had come into the hearts of men. And if this word was so powerful, eternal, that he could overcome nothingness and create from it, then we can trust that this very word, this very eternal God, could overcome the darkness in men's heart. So that's what we looked at last time. That's who the Word is. The Word is eternal. And it's through this eternality that all things came to be. Both what was, but also as we anticipate, what would become in the hearts of men. But then verses 6 through 8 tell us about how the Word chose to testify to himself. Let me read again. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. 
This will be an important theme as we look in the Gospel of John. Those who bear witness, they testify to the light. They testify to the purposes of this God, of this eternal God, of this eternal word. And notice that language, testify. Does it surprise us that this is the means and the mode by which the word would reveal himself? If he has given himself the title word, think of what word does. Think of, think of our own relationships. When you desire to express yourself to one another, to express the innermost recesses of your beings, to lay yourself bare before one another, how do you do that? We express it through language. I mean, that's the way that I do it when I'm hurting or joyful. I mean, I do this all the time. How many of us, when something amazing happens in your day, right, the first thing that you want to do you want to tell somebody about it. I think that's, that's what I do. I, the first thing I think of is, bam, I have to call Laura. Right? I have to call Laura. I have to call my wife. I have to tell her about this. Or if I'm not able to do it right now, I'm thinking, somehow I have to file this away in my mind so that I can tell her what happened when the right time comes. Like That's my first instinct. And you notice the intimacy of our relationship. It's man and wife, and it's my joy. It's my privilege to go and to speak to her and to lay myself bare. It's the same way that notice when we're in, we're in grief and sorrow and we're racked with sobs. A, a cry comes out from our lips. Sometimes it's audible, sometimes it's inaudible. But nonetheless, it's some type of expression through language that there is severe emotion. And in the same way, if, if the word is the very expression of God, if this word reveals to us who God is, both in its being, but also in the creation that he creates, it's no wonder that the word would choose human beings to bear witness to him, to testify about who he is, to reach those deepest parts of our souls, those deepest parts of what connects us in language, to prepare the way for his coming into this world. You see, John acts as a prototype for the way the word has worked from generation to generation. In God's Old Testament church, he was constantly calling people, prophets, to come and to express through word his truth to his people. Because of their sin, oftentimes, that was a problem, because the truth that they were expressing was that the people were sinning and they were going astray and they needed to return to God's word. Nonetheless, testimony had always been an important part by which God revealed himself to his people. And if language is the means by which we reveal ourselves to one another as an expression of who we are, it's no wonder that the word would call men and call women over the generations of the church to testify to who he is. And this is what John did. Now notice that John the evangelist is very clear that John the Baptist is not the light. This, in fact, is, is who this is, right? This is John the Baptist. He is not the light. He is not the one that had been predicted to come. Nonetheless, he bore witness to it. And notice his witness carries weight. Because notice what he'll say in verse 15. He identifies the one who comes after him but was before him. It's a true and sure testimony that carries the weight of generations before him that reveals that this word is in fact who John is introducing in verses 1 through 5. He is the eternal word. So this is how God has chosen 
to identify himself, how the Word has chosen to testify to himself by bearing witness through other men. We're going to see see this throughout the, the, the Gospel. It's going to be through the disciples. It's going to be through others who express belief, even a Samaritan woman. But God is going to bear witness to himself through the voices of many to come in the Gospel of John. This man who was called and set aside for the purpose of revealing the word through his words. But then we get to the crux of our passage here in verses 9 through 14. This is actually the epitome. It's a a climax of this passage in the way that it is arranged. It tells us why the word, in fact, came. Read it with me. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Can you, can you see the tragedy in that expression? If the word created all things, all things are then meant to reflect his glory. Isn't it the truth that all things would resonate, would reflect would be drawn toward the glory of their creator. In a real way, reflect it. I mean, it's the same way when we create something in our own daily, whether we're drawing. I know, for instance, Sebastian loves to draw. When he draws, right? Draws his dragons or things like that. They reflect his personality in a real way. I know when Talus takes up that, Talus loves to whittle, right? He loves to take a knife. He loves to go work on wood. When he see, see, what he's trying to do is he's trying to, fashion and to shape something that reflects who he is, his personality, right? He's trying to put his skill and his deference and his, uh, his skill and his, his dexterity into that, what he's creating. And if you think, right, if those Sebastian's dragons could talk or Talus's spoon, right, he just actually whittled, what is that, the, uh, a spreader, right? He took a piece of wood and he made a spreader. If that spreader could talk, you'd think it would say, thank you, right? you think it would have a desire, first and foremost, to see its creator, to meet it, to know it, to express its gratitude, that it would create it and make it. But what we see here is this true light, which not only created all things, but also is seeking to recreate those things that have fallen and been plunged into sin. Notice the tragedy of it. The world does not know him. This light breaks into the darkness, and rather than this darkness or those who are trapped in it, rather than run to the light, what, what do they do? They turn their back and they move farther away from it. All that is good and lovely and pure. They want nothing to do with it. And to couple that, to actually exacerbate that, verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Here we have now, we've been talking about the world, all things that are created. Here we have a talk, we're speaking about the Old Testament church. We're speaking about Israel. You see, the fulfillment of every promise and prophecy that was given was born into their midst. All of the oppression, all of the suffering, all of the longing that had been building since their father Abraham for 2,000 years appeared in the form and the image of Jesus. And they didn't receive it. This too will be a theme in John. Where Jesus will work signs. Jesus 
will have discourses. Jesus will have engagements with his people only to be rejected by them. I think we can come up with various analogies to express this. But just imagine, one of the things that we see often is that those who have been given away for adoption, this is not a perfect analogy, but those who have been given away for adoption, they've never known their family, right? At a young age, maybe their mother and father, for whatever reason, gave them up for adoption, and they've lived 30 years of their life not knowing who their family and their parents were. But then, through various means and ways, they're able to track down that family, And that family, all the time, had been hoping for a reunion with that lost child. The mother who had given away her child had said every day, I wonder what that baby looks like. I wonder if it favors me or his father. I wonder if it does that thing with its hair like I do. I wonder if it has the same personality that I do. I I wonder if it's creative, that it loves art like I do. Or maybe it's musical, like its father or his grandfather. The father thought the same thing. Perhaps they even prepared, this is what, they prepared an agenda for if this ever happened. This is what I would want to do. These are the questions that I would want to ask of this child. These are the activities that I want, would want to do with them. And every day, for year after year, those thoughts occupy their mind. Sometimes there's crying at night. There's sadness and there's sorrow over this loss, over this fact that they feel incomplete without this child. Then suddenly, that child shows up at the door, twirling the finger in its hair, playing the piano as deftly as his, his or her father does, bearing the resemblance of those generations of this family. And suddenly the mother and the father and the family that who are gathered there for the reception of this child take it by the hand, take it to the door, lead it out and close the door. Rejecting their own child. All the signs, all the hopes, everything was there that they wanted. They had all the signs before them from the figure, from the talents, maybe from the way that child spoke. They had all that hope and that anticipation. But when it was standing there in front of them, they rejected it. They did not receive it. And in the same way, that's what happened. It's great tragedy. Israel had been promised their Messiah. They had been promised the one that would come, that would be like them, that would be like Isaiah 53, that would take on the form of their people, even though it was not lovely or anything that anybody would take exception to in any way. Nonetheless, it would bear their resemblance. It would come to bear their sorrows. It would come to be one of them in every sense of the word. And they knew it not. They received him not. You see, they couldn't get over the flesh And that's what we'll get to in verse 14. But look, in verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, this is the purpose. This is the why the word came. Can you, 
Can you see this here? We've already seen, as I've mentioned earlier in last week, that this word is in relationship with his father. And what we come to know through this gospel in relationship with the spirit. And I think last week, I talked a little bit. I'll repeat this. Not everybody was here. It was good, though. But people sometimes ask, what, what, what was God doing before he created all things? What was he doing? And Augustine, like I said last week, said, well, I'm not going to answer it as some people do, which says he was creating a hell for people who were too inquisitive who asked these questions, right? You know, that's, Augustine wasn't going to, to go there, even though he did go there. <laughs> but in this case, right, we see that God was in perfect satisfaction and joy with himself in these persons. I talked about it in Sunday school this morning. God is relational, Right? That is an expression of you and me. We are relational. There's a reason that we love our mothers and fathers, our sons and daughters, our aunts and uncles. What's that expression that we have? My mother-in-law loves to say this. And to be honest, I don't understand it fully. My family composition looks very different from hers. But she loves to say, regardless of the situation, you do for family. Now, does anybody say that here? You do for family. Right? Doesn't? There we go. You do for family. Families matter. Those related, you're, Laura's smiling, right? Like, and that costs you something, right? That, that takes cost, but when you have these families, right, there's something special in those relationships, especially for parents and their children. There's something beautiful there. As other commentators have noted, this is probably the reason why the devil so fervently targets families. Those relationships that should be so beautiful, so full of peace and comfort and joy. Just think of our own lives, right? Those things are so often full of strife and hurt and sorrow or even estrangement. And that's how we were. We were in this darkness estranged. But notice what the word came to do. For those who would believe in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. To move from that darkness and that enmity and that hostility. Kiddos, you remember we've been talking about this in Colossians, right? Because we were at enmity and hostile to God in mind and deed. And he took us from that position of enemies and hostility. And instead he brought us in to become children of God. Of God to have this very same relationship that the Word had with God, with the Father. Right? So that we might be sons and daughters, not born of flesh and blood, not something that can be corrupted, not something that can die, not something that is temporary, but something that is permanent, something that won't change, something that is conformed and confirmed unto eternity. A relationship that, unlike our own, with our father and our sons or our mothers and our daughters that isn't filled with strife and regret and sorrow. But what we end with here is when and how the word came to accomplish this, this beautiful condition of father and children. Because in verse verse 14 he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this still speaks to how God does this. 
This is the word becomes incarnate. Notice this word when he dwelt among us and this word flesh. There are a lot of words that John could have used here to describe the incarnation. And that's what we're getting at here. This is the incarnation of the word of the son. But he chose flesh. He could have said body. He could have said man. Right? As a matter of fact, there are other places in the New Testament where those words are preferred. But instead, he used flesh. Flesh was generally associated at this time in Hellenistic Judaism that had interaction with Hellenistic ideas and thoughts about materials, about stuff. That materialism, like material stuff, was yucky and riddled with sin and imperfection. And John uses that word to say that the word took on all those things about us that were least desirable. And not only that, he tabernacled in our midst. Not only did he take on those things that get sick and decay and die, but he did it fully. He didn't leave one part of that nature behind. You see, God didn't actually lose anything, any part of himself when the incarnation happened. He gained something. He added something to himself. He added a human nature. And he didn't just add part of that human nature. He didn't just add the good parts of those human natures. He didn't even take that human nature and say, I'm going to make it superhuman nature. We'll all be like Superman, who can fly around, shoot rays out of his eyes, breathe in outer space, right? That's not the type of nature that he took on. Instead, he took on flesh. With all of its shortcomings, not the sin, but with all of its shortcomings, with all of its faults, with all of its limitations, so that he might tabernacle amongst us. He came to be our refuge. One thing that I've been doing with Talos recently is that we've joined a trail life. It's like a Boy Scout group. And we went camping. I didn't grow up camping, um, so I know nothing about it. I don't know what I'm doing out there. You probably leave me alone in the woods for 48 hours and you'll never see me again, right? I couldn't make my way out. I couldn't survive. I'd probably eat a mushroom that would send me to the grave. Something like that, right? And so when, I, when we were out on a nature walk, right? We were out in the woods on a state park and you're real isolated out there. It's wilderness out there. I mean, and you go far enough, right? It's quiet. I mean, you can hear the sounds of the woods, but it's quiet. And you think... If it was just me here, I'd be really alone. I'd be all by myself. And if it was dark, I'd surely be lost. But then as you're walking, as you come near to your, your camp, you see tents. And, and I got to say, when we came near to our camp, and I saw those tents, I felt a sense of refuge. I felt like I'm, I'm safe. I'm home, right? I'm with others of like mind. And this is the language that John is using of Jesus. He comes into our midst as our refuge. When the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness for all those years, they could look at that tent which was in the midst of their camp and they could find in it refuge and hope. And in this case, when the word became flesh, we could see 
the very expression of God as our refuge. Because that's what verses 16 through 18 say. For from him, excuse me, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You see, the invocation of Moses here is to say that the law is also word, isn't it? The law also has word. It also speaks what we talked about earlier. There's a reason why we confess this. It gives us the character, the nature of God, its perfections and its beauty and its righteousness. It's a word about who he is. But there's nothing in this law that allows us to keep it. There's no power in these tablets. And so when John says that the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus, and then he says grace upon grace we have received, what he's saying is that that gracious giving of the law, of what we confess, so that we might know our sin, we might know how we're to relate to one another, we might know the character of God himself, what he is saying is that that grace has been replaced by a tabernacling one amongst us who can give us the power to keep the law. You see, because that refuge is not just vain, it's not just something we can look at, but it's something that we can enter. And that, as John will tell us, actually enters us through his spirit. See, that tabernacle walked amongst us, revealing to us that we could keep the law if we would believe in him, because he would come and he would dwell within us. If we would only believe how he came to accomplish this task. And that's how we close here. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You see, this verb that we have here, to make him known, right? And this language here, this language actually talks about, uses the same word as the word that we have for exegesis. Do we know what that word means? Exegesis, right? It's something that we do when we read the Bible. We try to draw out the meaning And in this case, what we see is that this word finally revealed by John to be Jesus Christ, the one who tabernacled in our midst. This word is actually drawing out the meaning of who God is. This is the glory that he is revealing. He is actually revealing to us who God is because you can't see God. You can't see him in himself. That's why he has a pillar of cloud. It's not so that the Israelites can say, oh, that's a nice fluffy cloud. It looks like an elephant today, you know, or it's a leaf tomorrow, and we can see it. That's not why it's there. It's there to actually control and to cover his glory in the same way that the fire is. So you can't see God's glory. Moses could only see God's back. Isaiah, when in the throne room of God, says, Woe is me! He thought he would be stricken down. But Jesus, this word, Jesus Christ, actually reveals his glory to us. He draws that glory out. He draws that meaning of who God is out. And he tells us a story about him. See, that's the language here. This is the glory that he is revealing. It's the story of who God is. That the depths of his love would be so great. And his mercy so strong and deep. That he would send the word who is at his right hand in perfect communion and joy and peace. That he would take on flesh that stuff which is corruptible, susceptible to sickness and death. And he would send it to be in our midst. 
to ultimately undergo the passion that we'll read about in the weeks ahead. To take this human form, to take this glory, and to place it on a cross. So that we might become sons and daughters, children of God, so that we might join this word who is at the Father's side. And I'll close with this. That word side actually means lap. And it, we might see it elsewhere translated as bosom. You see, so great was this grace that Jesus took on this flesh and dwelt amongst us so that we could see the glory of the Lord revealed in his suffering on the cross. And that when we see that glory, we might not do so from a distance. We might not do so as hostile aliens and strangers, but we might be able to behold this glory from the very lap of our Father himself. That's an amazing thing, that he would take us from that condition and he would put us on his knee, cradle us in his arms, treat us like his own son this word became flesh this is the logos this is the word that John has introduced us to it is an eternal word a relational word a redemptive word an incarnated word this is what we'll see in the weeks ahead and if we believe then that lap can be ours too let's pray